Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Who are we, this drug policy reform movement? We're the people who love drugs. We're the people who hate drugs, and we're the people who don't give a damn about drugs. But every one of us believes that the war on drugs is not the way to deal with this stuff. So what we're doing now, we are building a political movement. This is a movement for individual freedom and social justice. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. drug war is a bust. That's the verdict mounting numbers of people are reaching, including numerous former drug warriors such as law enforcement, criminal justice professionals, and the American Medical Association. They say that like prohibition before it, the drug war has actually worsened the problems while saddling society with unaffordable costs with no end in sight. It took the Great Recession of 2009 to tip the issue, like a tide going out, the recession beached various detritus on the economy's shore. Many states say they simply can no longer afford the costs of the drug war, and they see badly needed sustainable revenues on the drug reform horizon, especially from legalizing marijuana. But Ethan Nadelman of the Drug Policy Alliance says there's more than meets the eye to this often taboo subject, which for decades has been a third rail of American politics. He says the hidden history of drug laws in the United States reveals a direct connection with overt racism. He says politicians have exploited for political gain the awesome power of dealing fear about drugs, and that the drug war's environmental costs are far too severe to justify. In the case of the drug war, the word on the street is that the going up is not worth the coming down. Join us for Busting the Drug War, the dawn of drug policy reform with Drug Policy Alliance founder and director Ethan Nadelman. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Have we finally arrived at a threshold in history where we can no longer afford to be throwing money at an unwinnable drug war? Is it worth wasting the environment and destroying lives, especially communities of color and low-income people? Ethan Nadelman of the Drug Policy Alliance spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. 
We can't escape the fact that we have lived and grown up in a drug war society. We've lived in a society in which we are exposed to, to all of the messaging all of the time. We live in a society in which we've become accustomed to the fact that the United States should lead the world in incarceration rates, in which those people behind bars, you know, San Quentin not far from here and other places, that's just over there, in which we shut our eyes. We've become accustomed to a world in which, well, let's not criminalize our marijuana and our hallucinogens, but those bad drugs, that methamphetamine and that cocaine, those better stay illegal because God knows they're bad and I don't want my kids doing it and, you know, we know what they can do. The Drug Policy Alliance, founded by Ethan Nadelman, is a nonprofit organization that advocates for policies grounded in science, public health, and human rights. Nadelman is a former Princeton professor and much cited author on the internationalization of criminal law enforcement. He's developed a set of practical policy reforms that are now being embraced by a growing crop of former drug warriors. I should say, I'm not a libertarian. I don't advocate for legalizing all drugs and treating them like alcohol and cigarettes. You know, I advocate with respect to marijuana for ending prohibition and more or less moving an alcohol model. I advocate for ending the prohibition on people's personal use and possession of these substances so long as they're not behind the wheel of a car or hurting anybody else. I advocate for trying to move away from the criminal justice system and our heavy reliance on criminalization and dealing with drugs. But I'm not a libertarian who believes that the free market is best in all cases. I'm not somebody who doesn't believe that the government should play a role in terms of trying to tax and control and regulate and treat drugs as an addiction issue and treat it as a public health approach. But that fear of change, that tensing up around it, and also I have to say that lack of passion around prioritizing this issue you know, we look at what's going on with the economy, we usually around health care and, and the markets and everything else. I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of other big problems here. But there is a growing movement of people who believe that this war on drugs, this way we're dealing with drugs in our society, that it really is one of the fundamental evils in our society. Ethan Nadelman writes that, the war on drugs and its prohibitionist, punitive strategy have failed to solve America's drug problem. In fact, he continues, these strategies bear much of the blame for drug-related crime, epidemic use of crack cocaine, and the spread of AIDS through dirty syringes. He sees drug policy reform and reform of the criminal justice system as fundamental issues of social justice, requiring a strong dose of sober historical honesty. Does anybody here know who were the principal consumers of opium and morphine, other opiate drugs in America in the 1870s? Anybody know the answer? Middle-aged women. Middle-aged women, mostly white women, oftentimes living in the South. You know, they didn't have aspirin then. They didn't have Motrin. Uh, They didn't have penicillin. Right? I mean, people, you know, women going through menopause, aches and pains, living in the South, bad sanitation, lots of diarrhea, opium, morphine, the liquid form, laudanum, what a miracle drug. It was consumed by millions of middle-aged, middle-class, mostly white, but also black and other women throughout our society. Were they addicted to it? Well, maybe in some respects, no more than we're addicted to our coffee now. And you know something? Nobody proposed criminalizing opiates at that time because nobody wanted to put grandma and auntie behind bars. 
I mean, that's what it was about. But when the Chinese started coming to our country, you know, 1870s, 1880s, what have you, working on the railroads, working in the mines, and they would work 70, 80, 90 hours a week and go back home at the end of the night, smoke their little opium pipe, just like they did in the old country, just like people had done for hundreds of years. It was just for them, just like people going back and having a bit of whiskey or whatever at the end. And that's when you got the first drug prohibition laws in the United States. That's when you got, in Nevada and California, the first laws criminalizing opium. It was when people started saying, what are those Chinamen going to do to our women and to our children, seducing them and addicting them and luring them into our, our the opium dens? The first anti-cocaine laws were in the South, in New Orleans, in Louisiana, directed at black men, at Negroes, who was feared, what would those black men do when they took that white powder up their black noses? And what would they do to our precious white women? First time a police department ever said, a 38 won't suffice, we need a 45, is when the word went out, you can't bring down a Negro crazed on cocaine with a 38, you need a 45 to do it. Read the New York Times in the first decade of last century, the outright racism of the stuff about blacks and cocaines, that's the origins of the law. The first anti-marijuana laws in the Midwest and the Southwest directed at Mexican-Americans, Mexican migrants coming up across the border, taking good jobs from the good white people, going back home, smoking up a little reefer, that funny-smelling reefer cigarette. As Ethan Nadelman describes, the shadow history of drug laws is racism. He points out that even alcohol prohibition was rooted in notions of racial hierarchy among white immigrants to the United States. History shows that Western European settlers became increasingly fearful of subsequent waves of Southern and Eastern European immigrants, provoking those already in power to pass laws aimed against these newcomers. Nadelman points out that even the hidden racist motives of alcohol prohibition were put to shame by the overtly racist drug policies dealing with cocaine at the end of the 20th century. But you remember 20 years ago in the United States, the crack baby was on the cover of Newsweek in time. The 350, 375,000 babies coming in, predictions about the kindergartens of the early 90s being flooded with these babies who were going to be low IQ or deformed or whatever it was going to be passing horrific laws. I mean, you know, 10, 20-year penalties for possessing four ounces of cocaine or selling two ounces of cocaine. But why? We needed to protect our babies. Well, I'm going to tell you something about crack babies. We all know it's not good for pregnant women to use drugs. Well, my, most you know, women get pregnant. You don't drink coffee. That's a good thing. You watch your diet. Good thing. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't, oh, right, that's good. Right? Don't do heroin or cocaine or booze. And there is a phenomenon called fetal alcohol syndrome, which can happen, which is a horrible phenomenon and is associated with alcohol abuse. You know what happened with the crack babies? It turned out the crack babies never showed up. It turned out that a crack baby was really a poverty baby. It turned out that when they did studies, you could not tell the difference between a child who had been born to a crack-using mother and a child who had been born to the same sort of mother living in the same sort of economic conditions who had never used crack cocaine. It turned out that the consequences of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day while you're pregnant are more severe than the consequences of smoking crack cocaine. 
It turns out you can't actually be born being addicted to crack cocaine. I mean, with things like nicotine or opiates, heroin, the baby will go through some withdrawal when it's born, but that can be managed properly with no long-term consequences. It turned out the principal consequence that they could identify with a mother using crack cocaine, if you broke out the poverty variables, was a slight risk of a smaller head circumference and a slight risk of being born early, but that essentially you couldn't tell the difference between children, that they were the same. Now, finally... In the late 1990s, the New York Times and Science Magazines and others start to report on this phenomenon, that the crack baby is 90-95% myth. But the imagery, the marketing of this idea in the late 1980s was so powerful, so dominant, so dominant, that people have an incredibly hard time even absorbing this. So don't ever imagine, as many people inevitably do, that there was a point in our history where thoughtful, informed professionals, wise people, doctors, scientists, looked at the range of drugs that were out in society and said, those ones are relatively less dangerous. Those ones are relatively more. Therefore, we'll criminalize those. Because if they had ever made such an assessment, they never would have put marijuana over there. And cocaine, which was not being smoked and consumed in the form of crack cocaine and stuff like that, or even the opiates, it might have been an entirely different calculation. A rational calculation might have, in fact, criminalized alcohol and cigarettes. Not that that would be a rational policy, but at least you you might have seen that those, in fact, were more dangerous and harder to domesticate, harder to integrate into our culture in ways that involved minimal harm. Criminalization of drugs and the war on drugs has always been not about the drug, but about who uses the drug and who is perceived to use the drug. And the failure of many people in America, including African-American and Hispanic leaders, to know that history and understand that history and understand the extent to which racism determined which drugs were criminalized and which drives the mass incarceration of people of color in our society today, that ignorance is one of the principal things, I think, oftentimes retarding reform in our society. Ethan Nadelman predicts that drug reform will win the hearts and minds of Americans only when the average parent believes that drug reform could protect their kids better than the war on drugs ever will. More when we return. This is Busting the Drug War, the Dawn of Drug Policy Reform. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can download this and other programs at the radio pages at Bioneers.org. 
For nearly 20 years, author, scholar, and drug policy reform advocate Ethan Nadelman has focused on building a political movement to transform the war on drugs into a winning policy that reduces harm and fosters public health and justice. Before I was involved, there was a movement in the 1970s. And there was a movement essentially by you know, Normal was a key organization. Eleven states succeeded in decriminalizing marijuana. One of the heroes of that time, Richard Wolff, played a pivotal role sitting right here. People believed that marijuana might actually be legalized. Jimmy Carter's administration introduced a federal decriminalization bill. Attorney General Civiletti supported this. Jimmy Carter said the harms of the drug laws should not be greater than the harms of the drugs themselves. There was this period of sort of clarity around these things. You know, I mean, people really thought it's inevitable. And maybe people got overconfident because what happened in the late 1970s was a massive swinging of the pendulum the other way. But something's happening now around marijuana. Around marijuana, there is momentum like I cannot believe. On one hand, major polls show that 73% of the American public favor the legal use of marijuana for medical purposes and 40% believe that marijuana should be taxed, controlled, and regulated more or less like alcohol. And on the other hand, the number of people getting arrested for marijuana is going up and up and up. From 400,000 a year in the 1980s into 600, 700,000, and now it's been over 800,000 in the last few years. These two trends, kind of more and more people getting arrested on marijuana, 40% of all the drug arrests in America, 90% of all marijuana arrests simply for possession, typically of small amounts, right? And meanwhile, the support. So we're heading for something really interesting. Now, historically, I'll tell you, one of the real breakthroughs was medical marijuana. And I'm proud to have played a very central role in most of the state efforts to legalize marijuana for medical purposes. Part of what you realize is how long this takes. We've had two-thirds or more of the public on our side to legalize medical marijuana, and even today we only have 13 states where it's legal, and Congress is still fearful of talking about it. And the White House, Obama did at least say, you know, they're going to back off. The feds are not going to go after medical marijuana in the states that have legalized it, right, where it's operating legally under state law. And they haven't been totally consistent on that, yeah. but it's a different policy than we saw with Bush. That after the attorney general made that statement, all of a sudden people started opening up medical marijuana dispensaries like they were candy stores with thousand to one paybacks, you know, all around Los Angeles, right? All of a sudden Colorado started popping up with medical cannabis dispensaries. All of a sudden the state of New Mexico, where we had passed a law, got a Governor Richardson to sign it, to have the state licensing, not just giving patient IDs, but actually licensing cultivators, that they opened up. They began to allow this. In Denver, Colorado, at last count in 2010, there were more cannabis clubs than Starbucks coffee shops providing legal access to medical marijuana. Meanwhile, California's crippling budget deficits prompted Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and other prominent politicians, including conservatives, to seriously study legalization as one financial strategy for bailing out the state. At the same time, an initiative to legalize marijuana made its way onto the 2010 ballot. To Ethan Nadelman, these are signs of a political sea change that could permanently beach the drug war. What he advocates is an honest, dispassionate evaluation of the pros and cons. I know that unless the ordinary American parent believes that marijuana is being legal, 
is better for their kids than marijuana is being illegal, we cannot win. Now, when people say to me, if you legalize marijuana, what about the kids? You know what I say back? I go, what about the kids? There are now three surveys in which teenagers say it is easier to buy marijuana than it is to buy alcohol, right? Who would use more marijuana if it were legal? People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, maybe, right? People who used to smoke and now can't get it so much. But would that be good or bad or indifferent? Well, it would be kind of mixed. Some of them, you know, might develop a real habit. That could be a problem. Others might use less booze or less pharmaceuticals. That might be a good thing. Some people might find new parts of their lives. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is marijuana, while it is a drug and it can be addictive and it can be problematic and you don't want people doing it every day and, and, and you know, you don't want people who are mentally ill doing it and you shouldn't be getting really stoned and driving, not as bad as driving with alcohol, but you still shouldn't do it. But nonetheless, nobody's ever died of a marijuana overdose. And if you mix marijuana with other drugs, you know, you mix booze with benzos or booze with opiates or benzos with opiates, right? You can die. You don't wake up. Never happened with marijuana. You may get really dizzy, maybe a little nauseous, more often the munchies, but you're not going to, you know. And if you get addicted to marijuana, it's the addiction is not as bad as being addicted to other drugs. And getting out of that addiction is easier than getting unaddicted to other drugs. So by and large, the risks of greater marijuana use, if in fact we make it legal, are fairly minimal. The benefits, in terms of no longer arresting 800,000 people a year, mostly black and Latino at this point, the benefits in terms of not spending 10 to $20 billion a year on a war on marijuana, the benefits in terms of bringing in 5, 10, 15 billion dollars a year in tax revenue, the benefits in terms of disempowering organized criminals in Mexico. The Attorney General of Arizona, Terry Goddard, his father was a governor, he wants to be a governor, not a particularly liberal guy. What does he say last Christmas? We need a debate on legalizing marijuana. And he's not saying we should do it. He says, let's have a debate. Why? Because the Mexican drug gangs, he says, are making half their money from the marijuana business. Nothing would deprive them of the revenue like this would. Drugs are here to stay. So begins the landmark 1983 book From Chocolate to Morphine by Dr. Andrew Weil and Winifred Rosen. They pointed out that more people than ever are taking drugs and that drug use has spread to all classes and ethnic groups, including younger and younger children. They noted that more people than ever abuse drugs. Today, that includes the widespread abuse of prescription pharmaceutical drugs. Dr. Weil and Rosen observed that the drug war has best served the large criminal networks. Today, that is amplified into narco states such as Mexico and Afghanistan, where drug revenues fund terrorism. It has become a national security issue. They said we must distinguish between drug use and drug abuse, and that it's a relatively small percentage who have a bad relationship with drugs. They observed that drug use is universal in virtually every culture, and drugs are culturally defined. In sheer numbers and real-world effects, by far the most destructive drugs are alcohol and tobacco. Yet they are regulated, not banned. And while in Rosen say, wanting to change your consciousness is normal and inborn, starting with children twirling to make themselves dizzy. They say drugs are just one way of changing our consciousness, and it's better to learn how to manage that well than to keep making a futile effort to suppress human nature.
How should we legalize marijuana? I don't know. But when we repealed alcohol prohibition, we left it up to states and localities to decide that. Right? And that's what we should do again. My preference, I wish we could legalize the thing and have the whole thing evolve like the microbrewery beer market. Right? My greatest fear about legalization is that Philip Morris and Anheuser-Busch and the major pharmaceutical and consumer good companies take it over. Give me a choice between them taking it over and people getting killed and the criminality and the arrest and the incarceration. The lesser evil is probably Philip Morris and Anheuser-Busch. But my preference would be for this to be more like the wine market, microbrewery market, high-end cigar market, something that's more specialized in that way. Ethan Nadelman contends that the best way to protect the rights of people who use marijuana as medicine is to make it legal for everybody. But the 40% public approval in the polls for legalization falls short of the political traction that's needed. And it won't be until 55 to 60% of Americans support making marijuana legal that we'll have a chance of getting Congress to talk about it. So the point is, we are building momentum. Who are we, this drug policy reform movement? We're the people who love drugs. We're the people who hate drugs, and we're the people who don't give a damn about drugs. But every one of us believes that the war on drugs is not the way to deal with this stuff. So what we're doing now, we are building a political movement. This is a movement for individual freedom and social justice, right? We stand on the shoulders and follow in the footsteps of other movements for freedom and social justice. If we could evolve in our country and eventually around the world to a world that accepts that drugs are here to stay, that we have no choice but to accept this and to make the best of what we have and not to harm it. Similarly, with the plants and chemicals that exist in our society and more and more of which will be devised and discovered, we have no choice but to accept the reality of their existence and to learn how to live with them so they cause the least possible harm and the greatest possible good. That is the challenge. Ultimately, there's a core principle driving the whole thing. And the core principle is that nobody, but nobody, deserves to be punished simply for what we put into our bodies absent harm to others. None of us deserve to be punished for what we put in here if we are not hurting anybody else or getting behind the wheel of our car or putting others at risk. That principle is core. I and each of us are sovereign of our own minds and bodies. And in a world in which the powers of surveillance and the powers of the state and the powers of the corporate world become ever more ominous, embracing and proselytizing this principle is the thing that can ultimately, I believe, take us to a place where drug policies are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thank you very much. Ethan Nadelman, Busting the Drug War. The Dawn of Drug Policy Reform. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences, purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation, all at Bioneers.org or by calling one 877 The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. 
Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Focus Audiovisual. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Pygmy Twilight Records at www.donjulin.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1110. Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.